Yeah, as Jane said, I'm Mike. I'm one of the leaders here at church. And I want to start with a little icebreaker question, as I often like to do. I want to ask you, what is your guilty pleasure? What is the TV show, or it could be you know, music or something else, that way you, you know is absolute rubbish, but that you still, you know, you still watch it, you still... Turn to the person next to you, see if you, you can share. Okay, anyone want to shout out? Go on. What's yours, Myra? EastEnders, yeah, that's it. You know, it's a great example. Anyone else? Anyone brave? We've all got a few. Okay, don't worry. So I, I won't make force you to. I thought I'd share, share my and Amy's. So Amy gets to be embarrassed now as well. So a few months ago, we got absolutely addicted to this show called The Physical 100. Okay? It is, I mean, it's absolute trash. <laughs> but we watched every single episode. The, the premise was essentially you have 100 athletes all with different, different abilities, different like, areas of expertise, and then they force them to compete in a range of challenges. So you're watching this thing going, this is definitely rubbish. But, oh my goodness, it made good TV. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so, and I knew I should have stopped watching this when the first um, episode was, okay, they got all 100 athletes, and they put them on some bars, and they just put the clock going and watched to see who could hold on the longest. That was the entire hour, an hour of my life that I will never get back. But somehow they just kept me, I'm just there going, oh, he's gonna go next, he's go. He's, oh, he's gone, look at that, I told you he'd go, he's great. And then suddenly the next one would drop, and you go, oh, no way, they fell, they were gonna be the best. And you watch this thing for ages, and, and like, you know, you're literally spending an hour watching people hanging about. Um, and although it was awful, there was some, this is the way I now bring this wonderful show into my sermon, okay? Um, there was something amazing about watching these people with the incredible perseverance and the ability, just the willpower and this sort of sticking power just to keep going. And there's a point even when there's, they split them into two groups and they don't see how the other people are going and how long they hold on for. Like they're talking hours and hours without even knowing whether the other people have dropped off ages ago. And you just get this sense of that's incredible perseverance. And the perseverance is the thing that we're going to be looking at today because that's um, the key characteristic that Jesus commends in the parable of this the story that we're going to be looking at. Um, now this parable, the parable of the persistent widow or the parable of the unjust judge, it comes with a little prologue. And I like it when the Bible does this. It gives us like a little bit, before it tells you the story, it just goes, just to let you know, this is what the story is going to be about. So that when you're reading it, you're like already understanding a little bit. And Jesus, um, it says, Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. So there we go. That's what we've learned. That's the lesson for today. Pray always and do not lose heart. And the whole basis of Jesus' teaching to pray always and not to lose heart is by he, he builds that on the sense that God wants to bring about justice and that believing this will empower us to pray always and not lose heart. So that's what the outcome we want to get. By the end of this today, we want to be more in line with that, praying always, not losing heart. And the thing that's going to get us there is the belief that God wants to bring justice. So we're going to recap the story. It says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. And for a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. So the best way to start, I think, is to meet the two players in our parable. Um, we have the judge. Okay, we've got pictures coming up. I've got some random picture off Google. Um, no? Okay, don't worry. We'll skip that bit. Okay, um, we've got, so, yeah, there we go. Um, the judge, and it says that he doesn't care about God or people, 
He shows no kindness towards the widow, and he doesn't care even about justice, which you'd think was a pretty basic thing for a judge. Um, so we get a sense that he's uncaring, he's unkind, and he's unjust. So you've got the judge on the one side. Then you have the widow. Now, widows in those days that Jesus was speaking had very little power or influence. They might well have been a lot younger um, than we probably imagined because of the times people got married and the, the different situations they had. They had no legal right to inherit their husband's estate. So when a husband died, the, all of their estate would go back to the male relatives of the husband. So the widow would often be left without anything. Um, and we don't know what the injustice was that she suffered, but the audience would know that this was not an uncommon experience for a widow at the time. But this woman is passionate. Even though she's powerless, she is passionate to see justice come, whether that's out of her own sense of justice, of what's right and wrong, or simply desperation coming from her situation. We don't know what it is, but her passion is clear. And finally, the thing that Jesus absolutely drives at and points at in this woman's character is that she perseveres. Without knowing whether she will ever achieve the outcome she desires, she keeps going. And then we get the interaction between the two. Desperate for justice, the widow keeps bothering the judge, keeps going up to you know, going to his house, knocking his door, getting him to do what she wants. And he eventually gives in and grants what she wants. He says, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And I love it. The original language for wear me out can also translate as strike me in the face or give me a black eye. That's the, the literal translation of it. So her passion and persistence were so powerful that there is this physical threat to this woman. She so wants justice that the, the judge is like, man, I better do this. I don't know how this is going to end for me. It's not out of love for her, but out of his own self-interest that he accepts, uh, gives her the justice that she seeks. So that's the overview of the story. But the question is, how are we meant to interpret it? What's the lesson here from Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't tell this story in isolation. It actually follows on from the chapter 4, Luke 17, where he talks about the Jews' desire for the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, last week we talked about the kingdom of God, and we talked about it a bit as we've done the different parables. Uh, as a society, a community, a world where God is held up as king. And subsequently, because of that, there is a world, a society, a community where there is fairness, there is justice, there is a move towards compassion in people's hearts and worship in their hearts. And the Jews would have felt this desire keenly because they were a nation under occupation by the Romans. They were oppressed, they were treated unfairly, and so they were waiting and waiting and waiting on this promise of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about the persistent widow, she becomes a picture for anyone praying for the kingdom of God, for anyone seeking justice in an unjust world, for anyone who wants to see God enthroned in his rightful place, both in people's lives and in our society as a whole. And the story is told, as we said, to show God is just and that he's kind and that we should pray always and not lose heart. Now, one of the patterns we see in Jesus' teaching, and you'll see this as you go through the parables particularly, is that he has this form of argument where he goes from the lesser to the greater. So, for example, when he talks about earthly parents, he says, he says you know, you are, earthly parents know how to look after their kids. How much more does the God of heaven know how to do this? Or he talks about uh, the birds, God's love and care for the birds of the air. And he says, how, even though God loves the birds of the air, how much more valuable are you than sparrows? So he has this idea that he goes from the lesser to the greater. So when he talks about the unjust judge answering the requests of this woman, he is saying that even an unjust judge responds to persistent prayer and petition. So how much more will God, 
who is just and kind and compassionate, respond to the persistent cries of his people. That's the key lesson that we're gaining from this. But maybe because of our own experiences of corrupt authority, of our own experience of injustice, many of us will read this parable but actually doubt that God is very different from the judge. We may doubt that God cares, that God is kind, that, uh, that he's just. And I want to go through these doubts. I want us to take some time to actually look at this and our own thoughts. Because if we believe this stuff about God, if we believe that God's not kind, that God's not just, that God doesn't care, then we're not going to pray. And if we don't pray, then we'll grow further away from God. And if we grow further away from God, we won't pray. And it becomes this vicious cycle. And what I want to instill in us as we do this is, is that if we believe that God is caring, he's compassionate, and that he is just, his justice is good, then it creates a virtuous circle where it leads us to prayer and continually helps us to grow our faith and back into prayer and back into faith and back into prayer and so on. So, um, the next slide. Um, we've got three things. I'm going to start with the first one. So, why don't we pray? Well, firstly, uh, one of the reasons I think we often don't pray is because we don't always believe that God really cares about people's welfare. Now, the judge clearly doesn't care about people's welfare. And God, Jesus' whole lesson here is to set God up as the extreme opposite of the judge. He is the one who cares deeply about people. Now, I don't know how you each see God, what life experience you've had that will impact that. But for some, it will be that God is present and close, even intimate. For some, you might see God as distant and disinterested, too big to really be concerned with the trivialities of our lives. And for some, you might be here doubting whether God even exists. And these thoughts often crowd in, and prayer seems like a pointless exercise off the back of it. Now, I'll start with the sort of biggest one. The Bible doesn't do much to argue for the existence of God, because from the beginning, God's existence is seen as a given. It, the Bible doesn't start with a rational explanation of his existence. It presupposes it. It expects that it's like this is already what we expect. Because for that audience at the time, there was no argument. There was no question. But we as 21st century readers, we have to be honest and say that we have doubts, that we can struggle to reconcile them. And for me, like, one of the things I do love, and I, I'm particularly blessed at the moment to be doing a bit of theology study as part of my training here at the church, um, is wrestling with these questions, reading up on the different ways people have rationalized God's existence throughout history. And in my experience, I have found strong, coherent arguments that bolster my faith and help me to return to prayer when I'm struggling. And so I think that's one challenge is, is actually to go, yes, there are things out there. There are people who argue boldly for God's existence. And so when we come at it from a very rational, scientific mindset to actually go, there, are, there is discussion to be had around this. Now, one thing is I've often heard of critics of prayer and God describe it as a crutch that we rely on. Or prayer is like, and, and God is like a, a drug that, we, that brings a bit of relief from the challenges of life. Now, again, I don't know if this is your experience, but one thing I've found massively helpful to be aware of when I start to think, have I just fallen for this um, crutch, or am I just leaning on this thing that's not real but is just there to help me, um, that I've built up for myself? One thing I've found incredibly important for me is that what I know is that when I'm tired, when I'm down, usually in the depths of January, that is when my doubts crowd in. And what that tells me, and then when I'm well-rested, when I'm energized, that's when I actually start to feel full of faith again. And what that tells me is that my belief in God does not stem from my weakness or my tiredness and my inability to cope with life, but that faith is the position of my brain when it's at its best. It is in the depths of January when I'm low that I eat loads of junk food and book holidays that I can't afford. That is not the time to determine the existence of a transcendent deity. That is the time just to, you know, like to, to build and support and strengthen yourself to be able to return to that. 
What I would say is that if you're aware in those moments when you're low or when you're struggling, the doubts about God's goodness or even his existence crowd in, make sure that you have things in place that rebuild faith. People who tell you stories about what God is doing. People who pray with you. Habits of prayer and worship and Bible study. Christian community. Building those things into your life, you know, they're going to help in those times. They're going to be what carry you through when you're struggling, when you feel the doubts crowd in. I know for me there are writers who build my faith. C.S. Lewis, Philip Yancey, G.K. Chester, and those are some particularly that I like, and you'll have other people, other ones you can get recommendations from people. I'm more than happy to share things. Um, that's where I go when I'm struggling. But I'll also try and avoid the things I know will sap away at my faith. Certain comedians or websites that take a strong anti-religious stance, those things are going to impact me. And I'm not saying you just hide your head in the sand whenever you're feeling, any, feeling down at all, but if you're going to wrestle with your doubts then make sure you're doing it when you're emotionally ready to do so. Jesus' concern for his disciples is not that they'll stop believing. It's that they'll lose heart, lose courage and confidence. And I would say that the battle for our faith, nine times out of ten, starts with our heart and not our head. And so therefore, seeking God in the time that, and when we're able to do so is the time we have to do it. Um, so that's the first one, doubting whether God actually cares. I think the second one, it's very similar and linked, but uh, a bit more nuanced, is that I think we sometimes we struggle to believe that God is ultimately kind. The judge in this story is only concerned with his own welfare. Even when he helps the widow, it's only out of self-interest. So um, seeing again how Jesus goes from the lesser to the greater, we need to understand that God here is being presented as the ultimate alternative to this. The self-interested judge is on the one end, and God the kind is on the other end. Now, I would argue that most of us believe if there is a God, then almost by definition, he has to be all-powerful. But that if he's all-powerful, then the existence of evil and suffering and injustice gives rise to the doubts that maybe he's not good, like he's not kind. And then, obviously, this then has a huge impact on us and whether we pray, because if we don't believe that God's kind, why would he listen to my prayers? Why would he respond to me? Now, I find it philosophically, it makes no sense to say that God is not good. Because any possible understanding of what is good and noble and true and right must stem from the God who creates the universe in line with himself. He defines, we can define goodness by an object's capacity to reflect God's character. For us to question and doubt whether God is good doesn't actually make sense. It's something we do, and I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this, but it's something that doesn't actually make sort of scientific sense because the criteria for God's goodness is defined by God. The only way I can tell you that somebody is a good person in a world created by God is if they are acting in accordance with the character of God who created the world and said it is good. So it's kind of mean, but then it's also meaningless to say that God is good, that line. I should say that God is goodness itself. You know, the Bible doesn't say God is loving. The Bible says that God is love. And I find that incredible. Just let that sink in for a moment, that right at the center of everything, defining the world we live in is a God of love and kindness and compassion. You know, that, that topic that's been written about by so many poets and philosophers and writers over all those years, the thing that encapsulates, you know, for most of us, like, it's been one of the most exciting moments in our life um, or something that we see, we watch films about, that is all there summed up in the character of God, like God is the one who gives that to us. And so therefore, when we're talking about God, that is something that should inspire us and give us real hope and joy. And we see the contrast between the judge who acts only with self-interest and the God who becomes human, lives a life of poverty, and then sacrifices himself to restore humanity to relationship with him. 
God's self-giving compassion for humanity is woven throughout the whole Bible. He creates humanity in love with a divine purpose, speaking over Adam and Eve with pride. And even when the story then changes and he removes them from the Garden of Eden, you see this little moment of compassion in the midst of it where he, he clothes them with animal skin to, to keep them warm, still showing that kind of parental love. Um, and that is one of the consistent um, metaphors throughout of it, the, the love of a parent, the love of a lover. All those things are intimate images that were given to us to show us God's compassion and love for humanity. My favorite story about Jesus is just after he finds out that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been murdered because of preaching about the kingdom of God. And it says that Jesus goes off on his own to, be, to have some time, quiet time alone with the disciples. You can just imagine how he's feeling. You just get that sense. He's just seen a family member killed. He's just thinking of his own future, his own death ahead of him. And, and then suddenly he's doing that. He's on his own. You think he's just got a moment of quiet. And then all the crowds start to gather. They all start to follow him. The same crowds, the fickle crowds that will soon be calling for his death. And he knows that. And the Bible says he looked at them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When I doubt God's kindness, that is the verse I read. That's where I go when I'm struggling to think, like, God, look at this universe. Are you kind? And I read that and I know that the God at the center of the universe is compassionate and kind and therefore willing to hear my prayers and answer them. So that's the first two. We doubt God cares and we doubt God is kind. And so our doubts that this can stop us praying and this can affect us. But whereas the story, the judge in the story was unjust... What I want to say is the third one, actually, I think for us, is that we worry that God will be just. I think that's the fear for us, is not that we don't believe that God is fair. I think actually the reason sometimes we don't pray is that we believe God is not like the unjust judge. We know that God is going to be fair and that God is going to be just. And sometimes that makes us go, ah, I, I, that scares me a little bit. Because we've done too many things wrong. Like some of us know, we all know ourselves. We've hurt people. We're not always as honest as we should be. And so we think... I can't pray. Like, why would God listen to me? And so, and, and that is, a, I think, a legitimate fear for some of us. We come to God and think, why would God listen to me? All the things I've done, all the ways I've approached life, how would I expect God to hear me? If he's just and nothing like this unjust judge, I can't bribe him, I can't trick him, I can't do anything else, he is going to do the right thing. So why would he listen to me? And we need to go back to our verses and see Jesus' word. He says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? I think the great bit about that is that when we become Christians, our old life dies. Every bad thing we've ever done dies with Christ, and we are made holy and clean. And so when God looks at us, he sees us as he sees Christ, holy and pure. The judge was unkind, uncaring, and unjust, but he also didn't know the widow. He had no reason to treat her with kindness. God is kind, caring, and just, but when God deals with us as followers of Christ, he is also dealing with his own children, his own family. His heart is already positively inclined towards us. We didn't come to God claiming our own goodness. We can't come to him that way, and our own worth to be able to be heard by him. We're not appealing for his justice in that sense. We come trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and on that merit, we can come with an incredible level of confidence because when God looks at us, he sees his son. He sees his child. He loves us because of that. Okay, so that's the judge. We've got those three things, reasons that we, don't, we doubt, but also that there is there's an answer to that. There is a re that we can turn back to God and be aware that God is kind, that God does care, and that he is just. But I also want to look at the widow. 
Because whenever you get these stories, you kind of think, what is this a picture of? What are we learning from these characters? And actually, I think the widow is a far more complex character. We said at the start that she represents anyone crying out for justice in the kingdom of God. But how we apply that and who we apply that to can really change how we understand it. So firstly, we can see how it's related to the Jewish audience and and Jesus' disciples at the time. They've been suffering oppression from the Romans. They're desperate for justice. And Jesus' promise to them is that when they cry out day and night, God will not be slow to answer. Now, the kind of justice they were hoping for was that God would rain down judgment on their oppressors, grant them freedom. But as we said, or as you can imagine, justice can cut both ways. They longed to see the Romans face judgment, but were actually oblivious to their own failings. The many times their own history where they had acted more like the unjust judge and the persistent widow. And let's not kid ourselves, we can all do this. Um, just as we can often think, oh my goodness, how could God ever not you know, listen to me? We can also be quite oblivious, unaware of our own failings and flaws. Um, but what happens is that Jesus enters into an entire humanity of broken people and broken systems. And he brings about justice, except rather than raining down oppression... On, and judgment on the sinners, on, on the oppressors, on the cross, he took the judgment on himself and received the punishment for every bad thing that humanity had done. And the law of God was satisfied, and in doing this, Jesus answered their prayer. He brought about the justice, and through it, gave them freedom so that man could be in relationship with God and experience the kingdom of God that they so keenly desired. So that's the first one. That's the disciples. But how does the widow's story apply to us now, right in the middle? Because we exist as Christians on the other side of the cross. And we need to get this because if we don't see what God has already done, then Jesus' words when he says God will quickly grant justice become a bit meaningless because we're now 2,000 years on. I think it would be a stretch to think, argue that's not a significant amount of time. If we're waiting on the same thing as the disciples, then Jesus' words become a bit meaningless. Instead, we read this and see that when Jesus says God will respond to your prayers, he will bring justice. We, holding the full story of Jesus' life, can see that this has already taken place. But yet, as all of us are aware, we exist in a world that continues to have injustice and poverty and spiritual emptiness. And so we acknowledge that this essential change has taken place through Jesus' death and resurrection, but the fullness of that has not come into realization yet. That someday there will be a complete justice, every tear will be wiped away, there will be no more death and no more suffering, and God will be worshipped. So there's the sense of this is, there's a change that's taken place, but then there's an eventual hope that we're working towards. And it's that which we wait for, that we wait on and pray for. The difference between our situation and the disciples is that they are standing in the rain and hoping that a bus will one day come. We are sitting on the bus and excitedly desiring for it to get to its destination. Through Christ, the kingdom has been established. Justice has come. Salvation has been made available. And now we pray for its continued impact on the world and one day for Christ to return and establish it fully. So that's the vision. That's the thing we contend for in prayer. The full realization of what Jesus did on the cross. But we know we have doubts. And add on to those doubts, tiredness, busyness, distractions, apathy. And suddenly we're all at risk of not praying constantly. All at risk, even with that great hope of still losing heart. And I just want to end with one last encouragement because, yes, Jesus longs for us to pray continually, to not lose heart. Yes, he wants to return to find a faithful people persevering for the kingdom. But when I read this story, I can't help but see the widow as being more accurately a picture for Jesus. 
Because there is a repeated theme in the New Testament where Jesus is the mediator between man, between us and God, one who stands before God the Father in heaven and advocates on our behalf. It says that Christ is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, intervening for us, praying when we are too weak to pray. He is the advocate, literally the lawyer, who brings our case before God, the fair and compassionate judge, and argues for justice. Jesus says to God, I have taken on the punishment for their sins, and I have made them righteous, so that God wants to bless us and bestow us with favor. 1 John 2.11 says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The writer is showing the scope of Jesus' redemptive act so wide that it will one day bring about that universal justice that we all long for. The book of Hebrews writes, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there's just this constant image of Jesus standing before God, speaking our behalf, doing it when we struggle to, when we're not praying continually, when we really can't bring ourselves to do that. And in Christ, we see the fullness of God's justice, his compassion, and his kindness. And in the knowledge of this, and that Jesus stands in heaven, praying on our behalf, we can pray always and never lose heart. Just coming into the land. So this, this section of Jesus' teaching doesn't actually start in the chapter we're looking at. It starts in the chapter before in Luke 17, where the Pharisees ask Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And for many of us, that question doesn't mean what they say. What it means is, doesn't God care? When is he going to intervene? When is he going to do something about my situation, about the situation in the world? And actually, when we get to the end of the story, Jesus flips the whole conversation around and puts it back on them and says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, Jesus is never concerned that God will not be faithful and good. Like, that's never a concern. Jesus knows the Father, and he knows how deeply and caring and compassionate God is. The ch- and what he's worried about is that with the challenges we face, the trappings of life, the distractions, that when the Son of Man returns, there'll be nobody left crying out for justice. And for me, that would just be the greatest tragedy. That Jesus comes back and there's no one here fighting or seeking after the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God to come. And I desperately want us to persevere. Because that's what this challenge is. Through the doubts, through all of the difficulties we face, how do we persevere? How do we keep going? And I so desperately want to be holding on until that moment, hanging on those bars to be the last person there. And even if it's just a flickering candle in the gathering dark, I don't want to lose heart. I don't want this to become a cynical thing that I do or just a uh, a drudgery that I have to go through every week. I want this to be the thing that I live for, the thing that I care about. And I want that to be the experience of everyone in our church, that we go after this with such joy because we see the God who is just, who is kind, who is compassionate and wants justice even more than we do. I think it'd be good for us just to take a moment to respond. So if if you're able, it'd be great if you could stand. Um, the band's going to come back up, um, but before they do, I just want us to be able to take a moment to pray, because the challenge for this is to not lose heart, and I don't know where you're all at, but there are moments where I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm scared I'm going to lose heart, I want to persevere, I want to get to the end, I want to be the last person hanging on, but oh, it's tough, and so I, I suppose I just suppose if there's anyone here today who's currently thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can, don't know how long I'm going to be able to hold on for. The doubts, they crowd in. The distractions, the challenges, how difficult this thing is. You know, to be able to keep coming back to God, this feels hard. 
So I want to give you the chance to come up and receive prayer. The reason we do it at the front is just literally practicalities. Um, uh, if you just want to come up, you just need to come stand, put your hands out like this, just shows you're open, and somebody from the ministry team will come and just pray with you. And all they'll do is they'll stand up, put a hand on your shoulder. They won't ask you anything. They're just going to pray for you. They're not, it's not them doing anything special. They're not going to come up with any clever words. They're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Because in all of this, it's not our willpower. It's not actually you know, our hard work. It's the Holy Spirit working in us and our willingness to let God work in us. So, um, yeah, just before the band starts, it'd be great. If anybody wants to come up and receive prayer, please feel free to come stand at the front and one of us will pray with you. And then in a moment, then the band will start and we'll continue to worship. So feel free to come up. That's great. Thank you. I'm just going to pray for all of us and then, uh, and then we'll start praying for anyone else who needs it. Father God, we thank you so much that you are kind, caring, and compassionate and that you are continually just. And Lord God, we, we know that the kingdom is good. This is something we want, that we desire, Lord God, but we admit that we have brokenness, that we have flaws in us, that we fail, Lord God. We're all there, Lord God, but we know that you stand in heaven and speak on our behalf even when we struggle. So we thank you that you are with us. Father God, give us the strength to persevere. Put your Holy Spirit in our lives to give us the, um, to keep having compassion and kindness in us, Lord God. We want to be like you, not like the unjust judge, Lord. Um, yeah, give us your strength to persevere. Lord God, remind us of your goodness. Help us to have faith. Gather around us people who can support us, Lord. Lord, we trust you. We thank you, and we want to come back and just worship you now, Lord God. Lord, be with us in your name, Lord Jesus.
Bye. 
Please continue praying if you'd like to. Um, otherwise, please do collect your children and we're